Welcome, you're watching Stockwatch. I am Nolutandum Tontim Lambo, and this week we look at stocks that are worth investing in, and joining me with his stocks is Michael Trehan from Vastact. Good afternoon, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, Michael, let's get right into it. So the first stock that you've given us is Naspers. Now, when you speak of Naspers, you're actually speaking of three companies <laughs> um, because the process and 10 cent link is just so strong. But tell us why you've chosen um, this stock today. Yeah, I mean, the stock's up, I think, 50% from its uh, October lows. Uh, it's a nice rebound. It still trades at about a 40% discount to NAV. Um, as you mentioned, NASPAS and Process are effectively the same company and they've got a massive stake in, uh, in Tencent, which itself is trading at a discount. So you're owning a company that's trading at a discount that owns another company that's trading at a discount. Um, and at both levels, management's working hard to get rid of those discounts. Um, now, it does come with some risks. Um, you're owning a, a very large company in a, what you would probably call a slightly unstable political climate in China. Uh, that could potentially be hostile to outside investors. So there, there are those risks. But if you're willing to take those risks, I think there's still a lot of upside, even though this shares up 50%. So let's talk about our management's plans just to turn this business around. That, that e-commerce part of the business um, has seen some trading losses, Michael. But um, it looks like management really has uh, or has a strategy in place to turn that business around. Why is it that, um, you know, that, that e-commerce business has battled um, for so long? Uh, management took the decision that because they had such good uh, cash inflows from when they still owned multi-choice and uh, their, their dividends from Tencent, um, they decided to rather make the business loss-making and grow very, very quickly. Um, now that the environment has changed, uh, there's a more focus on profitability uh, I instead of, of, of growing revenue. Um, and that's been a, a nice uh, welcome. Uh, it's been welcomed by the market. Uh, it is worth pointing out that most of uh, NASPAS's side ventures are almost rounding errors compared to what its uh, value uh, is in Tencent. I'm very keen to find out actually how, how it works out to be um, so wrong in terms of what's happening on the market and the valuation we see on the market and the real intrinsic value of a company. Uh, Michael, how does it happen that a company like NASPAS that both you and I know is quite a decent business trades at such a discount? Sure. Uh, well, if you ask the NASPAS management team, they're trying to be not, they've been trying to answer that question for a number of years. Um, their conclusion is that uh, large institutions can't buy enough of the share, um, and whenever they get uh, to a large shareholding, because NASPAS is so big on the JSC, they're forced to sell it down just because of mandates. Um, I think part of it is. Locally, we, we don't trust what uh, China has valued uh, Tencent at, um, and there's also the, the holding structure has got some question marks around it. Um, that increased risk is part of the reason you've got that discount. Um, and then uh, not to, to, to forget, if NASPAS sells Tencent, there's still question marks around will they have a, a capital gains bill uh, at the end of the day. So far, it doesn't seem like that, um, but it's, uh, there are some questions if they had to sell that stake in its entirety, uh, would they still have to pay some taxes over to different governments? I'm actually very keen to find out, um, you spoke about the holding company issue. In South Africa, we've seen lots of unbundling, really trying to realize the real value of holding companies. Is NASPAS just like the rest? Do you think one day they could wake up and say, look, 
we're going to unbundle and we might deal us because of this issue of really um, the mismatch between the market value and the fair value of the business. The investment community has been calling for an unbundling for a number of years. Um, to the management's credits, uh, they, they haven't done that. Um, I'd say we're getting to a point now where it's probably better that they do it than they don't. Um, if you had to ask the investment community, the reason that management haven't unbundled Tencent um, is because their bonuses uh, are dependent <laughs> on those those values. Okay. Um, and unbundling Tencent is the bulk of the value. And if you unbundle it, then all of a sudden your, uh, I don't know, the 100 million rand uh, salaries uh, look slightly inflated. Um, but I think the investment community, that call's been getting louder over the years. Um, and it's, they're basically saying, you know, if Tencent's the bulk of your value and that's what drives the, the share price, Let's unbundle Tencent as a separate holding, or actually keep Tencent in the current structure and unbundle all your other stuff, um, and give shareholders the option of which asset they actually want to own. Um, and that would do a massive value unlock overnight, um, but we're not there yet. Yeah. I'm actually very keen to find out also about Tencent, uh, Michael. You know, every time we speak about Tencent, I guess it's also on the back of the fact that the Chinese political climate is so volatile. But as a business, let's just talk about the strength in that in that stock. Is, is Tencent um, really a, a strong, strong business? Um, or is it a business that is kind of getting there and is just uh, really, you know, overshadowed by the fact that it keeps appearing in the media um, because of, you know, the Chinese economic and political climate? Yeah, I think the, the answer to this question has changed significantly over the last 12 months. Mm -hmm. um, two, a year, two years ago, Tencent was a very fast-growing company. They had uh, tentacles in uh, many parts of the economy. Uh, their, their WeChat app was a super app where um, they had I think it's like 800 million users. Um, and through that app, um, they were able to get into uh, gaming, they were able to get into e-commerce, they were able to get into uh, online uh, uh, online shopping, um, they, they were doing cloud storage, they were doing just about everything that they, they could because they had the user base. Um, the climate in China has now changed where they're saying we don't want these dominant companies um, because we feel it's, it's not good for the prosperity of the overall nation. And uh, Tencent's been forced to either close some of their divisions, spin out other divisions. Um, their most profitable gaming division hasn't had a new game approved, I think, in the last 12 to, 12 to 18 months. Um, and that's hindered growth quite significantly. So, um, you know, their prospects don't look as good as they used to. Um, but it is worth pointing out that Tencent itself is an investment holding company and they've got a lot of listed um, entities that they own that uh, at the moment cover a large percentage of its own market cap. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so Tencent themselves are doing share buybacks and bundling businesses to create value. Um, and I think as Tencent unlocks value, you'll see value unlock NASPAS shareholders. And then as NASPAS management unlocks value, you see share, uh, shareholder value again. And that's why you've seen the share price jump 50% a month. All right. Also, let's just talk about um, NASPAS in South Africa. Um, uh, this is what part of the business that I guess, um, you know, I mean, they have a head office here. They have a South Africa CEO. Um, how much value sits in South Africa, uh, Michael? And is there like value for them to unlock? You know, is there, uh, could there acquisitions they could make? Um, could NASPAS still grow in South Africa? 
I mean, they've got uh, obviously the take lot stake, which is, has got some value, as we spoke about earlier. They, they're driving e-commerce to be profitable. Um, they also have the, the Naspers Foundry Incubator, where they're putting a lot of money into um, new emerging businesses that uh, you only need one home run to, to, to create significant value. Um, and also the, the networks that Naspers itself has that they can introduce those companies to. So those are probably the two parts of the business that are not owned by Process, but is, is part of Naspers South Africa. Um, Naspers also trades on a bigger discount to NAV than Process does. Um, so there's also that, that uh, value unlock that you could come see, could see through. Um, but effectively, Naspers Process, same thing um, with a few tweaks that are fairly minor. And then let's just look at the, the outlook for the next few months, possibly a year. Um, where do you think we'll see the green shoots? Do you think we'll see those losses turning around for them um, and that it will just be a better year, less volatile for NASPAS, um, maybe in 2023? No, I think we see uh, NASPAS is one of those traditionally volatile companies. Um, and I don't think Tencent, NASPAS follows the lead of Tencent. Uh, things in China are going to continue to be volatile. Um, I think it depends on how quickly the Chinese economy opens up, uh, how friendly Beijing becomes to, to their, their tech titans. Um, that relationship seems to be thawing. Um, and that, that goes well. Tencent does well and Naspas will do well. Sure. All right. Let's move on to um, Richmond. Now, this is a, a luxury business um, based in Switzerland. Uh, but you like this one, uh, Michael. Tell us why. Yeah, I mean, also, the stock's up 25% of the last few months. Um, you know, even though we've seen a year of turmoil for, for asset prices, um, the rich seem to still have money to be spending. Um, if you're buying 100-year-old brands, there's only so many of them around. You know, Richemont's got a large chunk of them. Um, the, one of the things that's been holding back the share price has been the, the online Hughes uh, Nesporte uh, platform that they uh, have now spun out. Um, and that's the, that they're going to, going to be doing with the joint venture. So it's not on their books. Um, and it means that they can then focus on what they do best, which is growing and creating luxury brands. Um, and they can leave the online stuff to, to someone who, who's better at it. Um, and they've also got a better mix um, of, of products. Uh, they used to be almost exclusively uh, watch brands with a smattering of, of luxury jewelry thrown in there. Um, but over the last decade, they've worked hard to grow the rest of the business so that they're more, more balanced um, luxury provider. Um, and they've probably underperformed the sector over the last five years, um, but they're working hard to close that gap. And then the one thing, if we like, is uh, the, the chairman, uh, Johan Rupert's known to be very cautious. Um, and that's, that's a good thing during turmoil that we've seen this year. So you might not see as big an upside going forward, but you also you're not going to see the drawdowns uh, during the tough times. Also keen to find out about that. Is the defensive stock, in your opinion, Michael, concerned the fact that the rich really can't spend money? It doesn't matter what like ordinary people like you and me might be experiencing. Um, the rich really can afford um, to spend through a pandemic, to spend through a recession. Does this turn the stock into a defensive one? I'd say it's fairly defensive. Um, you know, they were hit during COVID because people couldn't travel. Mm -hmm. um, they've... Traditionally, their biggest spenders have been people who are traveling, you know, while you're feeling good about uh, traveling, you go into these, these stores, you buy things. 
Um, also, there's uh, the travelers sometimes travel specifically to be buying Richmond goods um, because of uh, taxes being different in different countries. Um, so Richmond probably wasn't as defensive as we would have liked it during COVID, um, but its rebound was swift and it's hung on to those gains, uh, unlike a lot of the other COVID-type stocks uh, that, that flew and then, then uh, pulled back quite heavily. Let's talk about another stock that you're keen on, Bitcorp. Now, I cannot believe what a good business this is. This is a really good business, Michael. Yeah, it's an amazing business. Unfortunately, the share price hasn't done much since it's unbundling out of uh, Bitvest, mm -hmm. what was it, five, four years ago. Um, you know, they were hit very hard during COVID. I think they had about three, four hundred million rands worth of stock go off um, when hard lockdowns were hit, uh, when their fresh produce disappeared. Um, they also had, had fraud in their, their Chinese subsidiary. Um, but management has put that behind them. Um, and to their testament, running a very conservative um, uh, balance sheet, they've been able to weather those two um, tough hiccups um, and has positioned them well for the future. Um, it also has given them the ability to buy some smaller competitors who, who haven't fared as well, um, get them at good prices, bolt them onto to the stable um, and just grow the business slowly through small acquisitions. So one of the things that really assists Bitcorp, Michael, is the fact that they supply restaurants mostly. Um, and that means that right now, for instance, as we head into the festive season and as revenge spending persists, I know for me, every time I'm out for dinner, I want to eat the best thing on the menu because it is revenge spending and it is revenge eating um, post-COVID-19. That puts them in a good position, um, even, uh, even during a recession. Uh, is that the case? They've been fairly conservative. You know, food is in general would be considered uh, defensive. Um, you know, they've worked hard to get out of their low margin business and stick with the high margin food stuff. Um, you know, they don't want to be doing cold storage. It was a very tough business to be in. Um, but food in general is defensive. Uh, you, you do go through through swings, um, and they do note that you know they can see the festive season. And they spend a lot more, need a lot more stock to to assist restaurants, and then afterwards uh, there's a bit of a drawdown. Um, but because of its defensive nature, you're not going to see share price swings as much as as you would with some other high flyers. So. Bitcoin comes with a good dividend, um, relatively stable share price. Um, and on a valuations basis, it's looking uh, pretty cheap at the moment, given its historic uh, basis. I'm actually keen to find out if you think that um, investors just haven't caught on to Bitcorp and the value that is in the business. Because um, as you've mentioned, that since the unbundling from the Bitvest group, it just hasn't really been able um, you know, to enjoy the kind of uh, audience from, the in from investors that, uh, that, that is evidence of the fact that it is a good business. Yeah, I think what happened was there was too much hype post the, the unbundling. And if you have a look at the Bitvest and the Bitfood uh, share prices, yeah, Bitfood unbundled at a very, very high multiple and Bitvest came to market at a very, very low multiple. And what happened was a lot of large institutions said, we want the food business, we don't want the, the rest of the stuff, and effectively sold the one and bought the other on unbundling. Um, and you could probably make the argument that Bitcoin came to market as a result at a too high a share price and has had to grow into that share price. Um, and then we got hit with COVID where... Uh, yeah, they were hit very hard, um, stock going off, but also restaurants not, not being open. So 
they they were hit from two fronts. Uh, it's you would say now is the first time in two years that they've truly put all of that behind them, um, and the future looks bright. And the share price has responded accordingly. All right. Also keen to find out, um, Mike, about uh, Michael about the the European part of their business um, and how that's managed to fare. You know, Europe is also usually a great place for tourism, a great place for people eating out. But really, um, they, Europe has had its own economic climate this year, and um, that hasn't been great. Uh, we have seen also people really pull back on discretionary um, 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 spending. So has Bitcorp felt this pinch in Europe? Um, I know in South Africa, I mean, it's, 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 we understand it a little bit more. But what what really has happened? with the European part then? Yeah, but in their last set of results, every region that they operated in, apart from China, saw good double-digit growth. Um, in Europe's case, they've just had a very, very strong summer tourism uh, season, and that's pulled through uh, in Bitcoin. It's very cool when you go visit these European countries, um, you walk around the streets and you see a bit food truck driving around. Oh, there we go. That's, that's South Africa making its mark here. Um, and that's one of the things we like about Bitcorp is that they have a presence just about all over the globe. Um, and there's a long shot play here where, you know, they get bought out by one of the large food groups uh, out of America. Uh, you know, Bitcorp doesn't really have a U.S. presence, mm -hmm. uh, but they're on all the other continents apart from Antarctica with a good presence there. Um, you know, and if a U.S. company wants to grow very quickly, uh, they could come give a nice 50% premium uh, offer to, to Bitcorp, um, and that would be a nice juicy one for us as shareholders. Yeah, I think one of the best things about South African businesses, Michael, is really seeing how international investors are um, being able to see the value in the kind of businesses that are built here um, and really come in with the great, great offers. We've seen so many businesses um, experience that. But sticking with the American theme, let's talk about your fourth stock. That's Amgen. This is a pharmaceutical business that seems to do... Um, cancer, osteoporosis, um, you know, cardiovascular um, medication. They do all of it. Yeah, so they um, they started out with uh, they, probably their first big blockbuster drug was Epogen. Um, and if that sounds familiar to you, it's because uh, the Tour de France teams were using it for doping because it uh, increases your red blood count. Um, since then, they've moved on to, to specialize in cancer treatments and your inflammation type uh, treatments. Um, and uh, the recent rally in share prices because they're developing a new weight loss drug. Uh, their competitor, Eli Lilly, showed very good stage three um, trials for a very similar drug. Um, and what's happened is the markets become very excited about the potential that you're going to have new drugs that target weight loss um, in general. And they seem very, very effective so far. Um, and Amgen being one of two companies to offer this type of drug, uh, the share price has responded positively. Uh, management is cautious to point out that they haven't done their own trials and you know the, the drug is probably a year or two away from getting uh, approval but uh, so far it looks promising and the market's uh, liking the, the extra diversity that this drug brings to the company. All right and also um, they've been on a bit of an acquisition spree so they recently acquired a company called Horizon so tell us about that acquisition and I think when I was doing my reading it said that they're actually still on the hunt for new revenues so it looks like also a cash flash business that is looking to expand. Yeah, the, the general pharma, pharmaceutical model is um, spend a large amount of money on, on research um, 
expecting most of the research not to result in anything. And then if you do get a blockbuster drug, uh, charge very high prices for it uh, while it's under patent, um, and then that recoups your, your investment and gives you a, a return. Um, Amgen's got a few what you would call blockbuster drugs that uh, bring in their billions each year. Um, and they've just bought Horizon, I think it was $28 billion, which is fairly expensive uh, for a, a small company uh, being Horizon. But they've got uh, drugs that uh, complement the Amgen portfolio very well, and they're expecting uh, their drugs to grow quite quickly. Um, from about 400 million in revenue to 4 billion in revenue at their peak. So, you know, Amgen's using its strong balance sheet uh, to buy competitors to, to buy, effectively buy their cash flow um, and introduce it into their, their sales channel and uh, potentially grow it more than that drug would do uh, on its own. Yeah, I think what's also interesting about this one, Michael, is the fact that this business has outperformed its whole industry. I think uh, when I saw the, the share price for the industry as a whole, 9% up this year. This business is 23% up this year. So investors know this is a good business, yes. Yeah, it's, uh, like if you go back and over a three-year basis, it's, it's been a bit mute. Mm -hmm. um, but recently, uh, this year being up, it's already uh, outperformed the overall market. Um, I think most of the drug companies have outperformed. Um, and then Amgen itself, because it's um, it was in a transition phase from previous blockbuster drugs that had come off patent to introducing new blockbuster drugs that uh, were now on patent, and you had this shift um, from very big cash flows into to new new drugs that are, are taking off. And this year is when you've seen those drugs take off. Um, add to it the positivity of, of, a, of a good dividend during uh, the tough times that we've seen. Um, investors have been happy and uh, you know they haven't had the, the headwind of COVID-related drugs that uh, are no longer selling. So some of their competitors have been very uh, COVID-driven. Uh, where Amgen hasn't had any COVID. So they didn't get the COVID tailwind, but also now don't have the COVID headwind. I'm actually glad you bring this up. This is very interesting. So there's some businesses um, in the pharmaceutical industry, Michael, that decided that they wouldn't actually um, enter what I would call COVID wars um, in terms of, you know, trying to develop drugs and so on. And it, it seems to have paid off for a company like Amgen, but very interesting um, that there'd be companies that would decide, mm, we'll, we'll, we'll let this one pass. Um, do you, can you take us possibly through um, an executive's decision to be like, you know what, this is not our fight or this is not where we're taking the company right now. Let's focus on what we do best. Let's focus on our cancer drugs and our cardiovascular drugs and so on. Yeah, I think the companies that um, you know, developed the COVID drugs and focused on COVID already had something in the pipeline. Um, there was no doubt that COVID was a, a race to see who could finish first. And if you didn't already have a horse in, in the race, there was no way that you were going to win. Um, you know, if you look at the vaccines, it's your first two companies that, that got those first two or three companies that came to market that, that have dominated. Um, you know, since Moderna and Pfizer and J&J have come to market, there's been a whole host of other companies who've also had COVID vaccines, but you've never heard of them. Yeah, um, and I think Amgen said, look, we're going to stick to our, our guns. We know what we focused on. Um, cancer, inflammation, those are where we want to play. Uh, COVID doesn't really relate to that. Um, let's, let's rather focus our resources on where we know we're going to win. Um, also, I think these executives are disciplined that they know that if everyone fights for the same pie, there's not much margin left in it. 
Um, so rather let the other guys get it and then the other guys let them play in the cancer arena and everyone's happy. I quite admire that discipline, to be honest, um, Michael. Okay, let's talk about the dividend. When I think it's a dividend yield of 2.7%. Um, what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, US stocks on average uh, are yielding around 1%, okay. uh, although that is increasing now that we're seeing interest rates increase. You see a, a positive correlation as interest rates go up, dividend yield should go up as well. Um, but it's a characteristic of pharmaceutical companies. They're very, very cash heavy. Um, and because of that, uh, they, they do pay quite high dividends. Uh, it's also worth noting that uh, pharmaceutical companies generally trade on a bit of a discount compared to the overall market because there is a risk of litigation, of political pressure, um, particularly in the US where these drug prices are generally, uh, you could probably use the word exorbitant, uh, there's always the risk that politicians uh, start to, to put a cap on on what can be charged for these drugs, um, and if if that's the case, you know you see a drop in profits very very quickly. So the market does trade them at a slight discount because of that increased risk, and because of the slight discount that you see in the valuation, uh, the automatic outcome is a higher dividend yield. All right. Well, thank you so much for um, uh, your insights this afternoon, Michael. An absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thanks Great, to my thank guest, you. Michael Trehan from Vestact. That's where I leave things with you, but do stay tuned for lots more coming up right here on Business Day TV. <laughs>